Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Kate Clifford Lawson. Kate is the author of a number of books, including Bound for the Promised Land, Harriet Tubman, Portrait of an American Hero, and most recently, Rosemary, the Hidden Kennedy Daughter, which was a New York Times and Wall Street Journal's bestseller. Her latest book, Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer, came out in September 2021 from Oxford University Press. She has consulted on feature film scripts, documentaries, museum exhibits, public history initiatives, and numerous publications. She's currently a scholar at the Brandeis Women's Studies Research Center. And I want to welcome Kate Clifford Larson to The Deep Dive. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to to have this conversation with you for a, a number of reasons. One, um, to give you a really wonderful podcast experience. And two, Fannie Lou Hamer is a, um, quite honestly, a hero of mine. And, you know, she's always been this person that has been a, un, I wouldn't say unheralded, but a lesser known figure in the civil rights movement. And over the past, I would say five years, maybe even 10, that's changed. And it's largely been the work of scholars like yourself and, and others that have been really beating the drum on her work. So anytime I get an opportunity to kind of surface her legacy and what she means, it's, it's very important to me. I came to her first as a high schooler. So the first time I watched Eyes on the Prize, I was in high school, this was 1987. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of Fannie Lou Hamer. And so from then on, I've always been like, why is there not more about her? Now there is. So that's my long way of thanking you for writing this book. And I want to give you an opportunity to kind of share what was your journey in terms of writing this book and shaping this conversation? And as a figure in history, why was she so important to engage with? Well, I think my introduction to Fannie Lou Hamer was similar to yours, but mine was a little bit later. It was in the early 1990s, and I was in a graduate program at Simmons University here in Boston. And I learned about Fannie Lou Hamer. And I don't know, she just struck me. She's just amazing. I wish everybody knew about her and celebrated her or had celebrated her since she died in 1977. But she stuck with me. And when I was in graduate school, I started working on my project on Harriet Tubman. I went on to do my dissertation on her. And I discovered that there were some similarities between Harriet Tubman and Fannie Lou Hamer both women that came out of the most obscure circumstances and really battled their way to fight for their family, the community. They both were women of very strong faith and it was freedom that they wanted basically. Anyway, I just, she, so I, I published my dissertation, the, the uh, Harriet Tubman book, and I did other projects, but Fannie Lou Hamer always sat with me. There was something about her, but I was like a 19th century scholar, and I thought, oh, I'm sticking to the 19th century. You know, then I moved into the 20th century with my scholarship, and I really like the 20th century. 
And after I finished the Rosemary Kennedy book, Fannie Lou Hamer was just sitting there like waiting for me to acknowledge, maybe you ought to take a look, Kate. So I did. And I I got hooked immediately, just like I did with Harriet Tubman. And it felt so right and so comfortable. It was like a story that I knew and I knew that I could write about in a different way that other people had written about Hamer. And I think the timing was right, too. It was right for me. It was It's right for Americans to read about her. So that was my journey. And here we are with the book. Now, it's interesting you bring up this notion of being a scholar of one particular section, moment in time, you know, your experience with Harriet Tubman, 19th century based, and now moving into the 20th century with Fannie Lou Hamer. You know, you've mentioned some of these points already, but one of the things I keep coming back to, and this came up a lot when I was reading the book, is that how much things have changed, but yet structurally, so many things have remained intact in some very damning ways when it comes to our progress as a nation, when it comes to dealing with race in particular. So I'd be curious to hear from you as, you know, a scholar of the 19th century and having spent so much time with a seminal figure like Harry Tubman, what were some of the through lines that you identified in two women's perspectives, two different places in history, but yet an overlapping, so to speak? Like, what were some of the things that you kind of pulled from that experience? Well, I said they they both came from obscure circumstances. They both lived under incredible oppression. Harriet Tubman certainly in under slavery, but the discrimination and the racism it's almost like it never changed, particularly in a place like Mississippi. Now, I was not a scholar of Mississippi. I never really studied it hard when I was in graduate school. It was just like the South in general. And then my scholarship centered on Maryland, where Harriet Tubman was enslaved. So when I really dove into this project and started learning about Mississippi's history, wow, it really, it shocked me at the level of violence and discrimination and oppression that was structural in Mississippi, really, as you say, structural. They worked, uh, the white people worked overtime to make it as the most restrictive environment in the country. And they do hold the terrible, disgraceful dishonor of having the most lynchings in the country. And one of the counties has the most lynchings of all counties in the country. So it's a violent place. It's oppressive. That was one thing that really shocked me. I was not expecting that level of horror. And Fannie Lou Hamer came out of that, just like Tubman came out of the horrors of slavery. So those are the through threads. You know, slavery didn't really disappear in Mississippi. That's the truth. I think that gives us kind of a jumping off point, because as I was reading the book, you know, Mississippi almost becomes a character within itself in the narrative. Though a geographic location, the restrictive nature of the state, the violence, the institutionalized way in which discrimination touched every part of a Black person's life there— made it, like I said, seem like a another character operating within the backdrop of this person's life. So when you think about Mississippi, and I think it's it might be an advantage to have not had as much experience with the state going into the research in the book, but 
What do you think accounts for that paradox in that in the most restrictive of states, even under operating a a national Jim Crow system, that you still manage to find such strong, radical elements of organization that permeated throughout the state that benefited from someone like Fannie Lou Hamer's eventual leadership, both actual and moral? So it is striking that there are people that rise up out of those conditions and they nourish and feed other people who create organizations that rise up as well. It's like a leader rises up, but they're not all by themselves. They bring up other people with them. And so I think that happens everywhere. We just don't zero in on it every day, but it's happening every day. So, you know, looking at Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, maybe there were people like that in Louisiana and Alabama. I don't know because I didn't drill down on those states. But I know that for her, there were just basics about human beings that drive them, you know, and it's going back to those values, the things that have the most meaning, and that's love of family, community, faith, and the desire to be a whole person, to be free, to make choices, and to live a good life. And so she had all those things, but so did everybody else. And in writing those, this book, I had to find those moments, something, what was it about Fannie Lou Hamer that made her different than her sisters or her neighbors or the other women in her church? What was it about her? What happened to her that she rose up above and they followed her? And that's the journey that I hope that you saw in the book is this evolution of this woman in the context of this nation changing and churning and fighting back and then leaping forward and falling back and over decades during the 20th century. And she took all those resources and things that happened to her and turned them into a cause. And she was the leader of that cause. And, you know, for myself, like I mentioned, how I started to come to Fannie Lou Hamer, and that was through you know, Eyes on a Prize, the documentary that I often cite and mention. It's it's one of the three or four most important things in my development and my politics and the way in which I view the world. So I people who know me are tired of hearing me talk about Eyes on a Prize, but it is available on HBO Max for those who are in the domestic United States. And so if you have not seen Eyes on a Prize or you haven't seen it in a long time, I definitely encourage people to reintroduce themselves, either introduce or reintroduce themselves to this story. But the book gives a lot of early story to Fannie Lou Hamer. It gives a lot of a lot of information that I was not aware of, only having been aware of her work as an activist. And one of the things that struck me was the deep care that seems to be centered in all of her, not just her work, but in her life. This bringing other children from the community into her home to become her children, caring of, or at least the, the knowledge of, of a kid or kids through her husband's other extramarital situations. What struck me by that was that there was a lot of the same care that was exhibited on a singular basis seemed to extend deeply into her work as an activist. How did you grapple with that notion of care and extended familial love that seemed to be a central organizing principle? 
Uh, you're so right. I think so watching Fannie Lou Hamer's life from the time she's born and understanding the history of her family. You know, she knew that she had roots in slavery, her great grandmother and the the preciousness of children and family coming out of slavery. And that was passed on to her. She was the 20th child of Jim and Ella Townsend. And as I discovered when I did my research, so other biographers have written about that, but when she was born in 1917, seven of those 20 children had died. You know, how does a family cope with that? That's so hard. Four of them were babies in the four years before Fannie Lou was born. So that child, Fannie Lou Hamer is born, Fannie Lou Townsend, I can just sense her mother just holding on to this child and treating her as such a gift from God and so special. And Fannie Lou Hamer talks about how she felt special. Her mother treated her as special. So that fierce mother instilled something in Fannie Lou Hamer that was different than what she had given her other children, at least in my view. And that love of family, doing everything that mother could possibly do to keep her children alive. And Fannie Lou Hamer had that sensibility. Family is everything. Children are precious and gifts. And so she just carried that on as an adult. And she wanted to have many, many, many children herself, but she couldn't because of fertility issues. So to bring children from the community that couldn't be cared for by their families into her own home so she could raise them with all that love that she just was bursting with just was a fulfillment of her dreams in the way that it, it could happen for her. So I had to have that trajectory. I had to understand where her family came from and how precious children were to them so that it would show for Fannie Lou and, and why that was so important in her community. And I think that's a perfect opportunity to, again, kind of keep the notion of care going but use it as a function of the fertility issues that you mentioned, which of course lead to what she later described and came to call as a, a Mississippi appendectomy. And the reason why I, I specifically want to reference this is not only because it's something that she talked about quite publicly, but it is centered in that notion of care that the state chose certain members of its citizenry to treat with absolutely no regard and care for their personal well-being and their familial well-being in terms of being able to propagate for generations going forward as fertility is clearly tied to that. So how did, in your notion of the book, how did all of that, again, shape her activism? Because um, it, it seemed as if this was a catalytic moment in her development as a leader. So the sterilization that she endured without her permission or knowledge, I think it changed the trajectory of her life. This happened in 1961. And up until that point, she was living her life in Sunflower County, Mississippi, but she was not satisfied. She wanted a better life for herself and her adopted girls. And for the community, she complained to her fellow workers in the field and to the women in church. And she wanted to see change coming, but she had no way of facilitating that change. 
Even the civil rights work that she was involved in in the 1950s was quiet, sort of underground, not out in the open. And it was slow. Things weren't changing. And she wanted change. So when she was sterilized, it sent her into this deep depression and she questioned her faith. She questioned God, you know, God, why did you do this to me? And, you know, she could have just gone home and just never done anything again, just angry and miserable and unhappy. But she knew that anger was going to harm her. So she found her way out of it at the same time that those young civil rights workers who worked for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, showed up in her hometown of Ruleville. And that was the seeds of change that she was looking for. They helped facilitate the change for her. She could become the change that she wanted to see. And it was through them. And I think because they were young and she was at least 20 years older than most of them, probably a little bit more than 20 years older. So she was a mother figure in some ways to them. And she looked at them as just the bright hope for the future. So it, it all fits together, this sense of family and children and community. Once she came out of that depression, those were the roots of her strength and her courage to face another day and to make sure that the change would come to Ruleville, Mississippi. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned anger. One is in my notes. So I, want, I wanted to make sure that we did touch on that because I think oftentimes in and again, this is my editorial, maybe I'm incorrect in this, but oftentimes when people are looking at the civil rights movement, I think people are allowed to feel like a resignation and a tiredness, but not until like the Black Panthers are people allowed to feel like angry, right? So I think Malcolm X and then later the Panther movements and others are considered quote unquote, the angry ones as juxtaposed by Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And SNCC, again, becomes more, quote unquote, radical. But those are like, again, what I see as like the comparisons. And you make quite eloquent turn to talk about Fannie Lou Hamer's anger, not just at her sterilization, but at the treatment of herself and her family as workers. You mentioned a story about her having to clean a bathroom. I'm not going to give away everything, but I'll just say there's a bathroom involved that made her that made her angry. I'm trying to avoid spoilers as I ask the question, but the notion of anger as both motivation, but also knowing that you have to hide some of your anger in order to survive in the place you are. How does that become, again, one of those motivating emotions when often civil rights stories don't allow for the sort of visceral anger that citizens would feel as they're navigating these inhuman structural systems. Uh, that's a really great observation about anger. So I think that Fannie Lou Hamer had been, you know, feeling anger all the time because it was a hard life. And I her all of her neighbors, all of them felt anger at the oppression. But she reached a boiling point. And she knew that that anger had to create change. And she separated her anger from hate. And she could see that her white oppressors hated her and it was crippling them. And she didn't want to be crippled 
like her white oppressors. So she had this very nuanced look. She wanted to use her anger to create change. Before the sterilization, that anger, the changes that she made were small. They were taking bubble baths in the bathtub in the plantation owner's house when they were gone. That was a little thing that she did to just take something for herself or to protect the workers when they'd go to have their cotton weighed. She knew that the plantation boss was cheating by using a weight that had been tampered with so that it didn't weigh the cotton correctly. So she would switch out the weights to make sure the cotton was weighed correctly. Those were small things. But after the sterilization, that anger became so much a part of her energy. She knew she had to do more. Now, protecting herself, the anger she had to hide before because it was dangerous for a Black person in Mississippi to exhibit anger. So after that, she wasn't going to hide it anymore. And she felt that she was going to risk it and risk herself to help make change. She didn't want her daughters to go through what she'd gone through. She didn't want other members of her community to continue to go through what they were going through. So that anger became motivation to be more vocal and not to hide it anymore. And, you know, it, it also begs the question as to who is allowed to be angry. And as I was reading the book, I was thinking, and again, I started this at the beginning when I said there are things that are different, but there's things that seem so painfully the same or at the very least similar, right? Because I could hear you know, maybe listeners or, you know, probably not listeners of my show because they're awesome and they get nuance, but dummies, conservatives and other assholes who will be like, oh, well, of course there's no slavery today. This is completely different, right? And losing the nuance of similarity, right? So clearly, yes, things are different, but again, similar. So that brings me back to the point about who's allowed to be angry, particularly when Black women are stereotyped as being angry, right? That's a common trope that we see. It's all throughout our culture and it's even throughout our politics, right? Most recently, even someone like Kamala Harris, fairly not angry person, being accused of being elitist or something stupid that, of course, conservatives were saying about a week ago from our recording this. So, you know, I want to introduce that ideology because I do want to parallel her journey with some of the conversations that were happening today. And, you know, how do we account for who is allowed to be angry, particularly when looking at how that was such a motivator for Fannie Lou Hamer's life? Right. So, well, in Mississippi, Black people weren't allowed to be angry, particularly Black men, because it could get them killed. White people could be angry all the time and it was okay, they were justified. But black people were not justified in being angry. And for black women, you're right. It's not only a stereotype, it's a way to oppress black women all over again, to dismiss them that their feelings, their values, their opinions don't matter because they're just angry. No one says that about white women or white men. They just isn't part of the conversation. So it's just a weapon to oppress people. It really is. It was then. It still is today. And Fannie Lou Hamer knew that she kind of played on that angry 
Black woman, because she was, and it didn't matter to her what people thought of her. She did worry about her husband, Pap, and other Black men showing their anger because she didn't want them to get killed. So that was a line that she tried to walk very carefully. And Pap did too. He had to check his anger. You know, he wanted to really, those, as Hamer would say, those white crackers in Mississippi, you know, it was just so frustrating and Oh, just the things that they would do. And Pap would have to check himself. And so did his neighbors or their neighbors. They had to be careful because they could end up dead. And people need to pay attention to this. I think of Emmett Till. He's been in the news a lot recently. There's documentary coming out on him and they're doing more to resurrect the story, the true story of what happened to this 14-year-old boy. The reality is 14-year-old black boys cannot be 14-year-old boys anywhere. They can't. They couldn't then and they can't today. We need to address that. What, you know, as Fannie Lou Hamer would say, what are white people so afraid of? And that's what she recognized was the root of white people's anger was fear, irrational fear that they had been raised on, that had come out of, you know, generations and generations of racism and oppression. How do you make people hate someone else? You make them afraid of them. And she didn't want that in her life for her family, for herself and for the community. And she knew that if people had equality, those horrible things would eventually disappear. I think she underestimated that a little bit, obviously. But that was what her hope was, that if people got to know each other and stop with all this hate and anger, then the world would be a better place. Yeah, I mean, we're still dealing with that today, right? 14-year-old Black boys are are murdered and 17-year-old white murderers go free, right? So this, this is the world we are still in and wrestling with. And, you know, when you, you used a, a perfect line, a perfect statement when you talk about walking the line, which brings me to another, another section that I want to spend some time on, which is the realities of a civil rights movement that was very male-dominated, that was also, to a certain extent, class-structured in the way the leadership developed. And you have Fannie Lou Hamer, who stood in opposite nature to both of those things. She was both a woman. She was a woman, and she came from humble beginnings and didn't have a formal education of Martin Luther King and others in the movement, even Bob Moses features prominently in your work, but yet she had an ability to touch people. So I want to ask about that walking the line between, you know, serving a movement and also being a woman in that movement. You know, others like Ella Baker, Diane Nash also likely had to walk that same line. So how did that factor into her, her work? Well, as you said, Hamer confronted, there were, you know, not only race, but within the movement with Black leaders, there was, there were class issues. And also in a regional context, too. Even in Mississippi, there were Black male leaders who were middle class, I'm going to put it that way. And they looked down on Hamer. They knew she was a leader in the community, but they still looked down on her, partly because she was a woman. And we have to put that in the context of the 1950s and 1960s. Women's movement was percolating and and women were trying to make their way and hear, have their voices heard. 
but she was a Mississippi sharecropper. And even those middle-class Mississippi men, black men looked down on her at times. And she was very effective in places like Mississippi in the beginning because local people could identify with her. She was of the place and she was just like them. Uh, Martin Luther King never connected with her. She just wasn't his type of person. On the other hand, Ella Baker, who was well-educated, was in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She was as high up as any woman went in that organization, but she couldn't progress to even higher positions because she was a woman. And that's very frustrating. And all those men were perfectly happy with that, but the women were not. And then the younger SNCC women, you know, there's been a lot written about this by members of SNCC, you know, as they left the movement and as veterans looking back on it, they write their memoirs. It was always a bone of contention that the women did not have leadership positions. That was the nature of the times and the movement. So, but Hamer, there was something about her that connected with audiences. And even those male leaders could not, they couldn't take that away from her. And they needed her to do that because they couldn't connect with an audience like she could. And so that there was something about, you know, she was raised by a a part-time Baptist minister. Her father was uh, a preacher as well as a sharecropper. So she had that uh, that style on the stage. She could really get an audience going and she would sprinkle her speeches with biblical passages and her voice would go up and then down and then she would shout and be angry and then pull everybody back. And then she might put in a little bit of humor here and there, but it was always very serious. But the audiences loved it. And then she'd use that magnificent singing voice of hers. And audiences would walk away feeling empowered. And that was the whole point. You needed people to feel empowered to risk their lives to go out there and try to register to vote. And while Martin Luther King was an amazing speaker, he did not understand those folks on that Mississippi Delta soil. Fannie Lou Hamer did. And she knew what it took to go to that courthouse and try to register to vote. Martin Luther King did not know about that at all. So there's just something magical about her and why I think that's important to understand and see in this book and to talk about is because there are leaders just like her today in small towns and cities across this country. And we need to recognize them and elevate them and support them because they are doing the work and reaching people that are not being reached by a Kamala Harris. And I think, again, I love going through this because I think it does provide us an opportunity to, you know, connect these dots from one period to another. And, you know, in the book, you open up with her widely known Again, I'm using the terms widely known, assuming people know this stuff, but maybe this is reading the book and hearing this conversation, an opportunity for folks to engage with this to whatever extent they have not. But her famous New Jersey address when they were resisting seating the Democratic Mississippi delegation to the Democratic National Convention. And LBJ attempts to cut her off. Again, no spoilers. But this speech kind of breaks this, you know, I don't want to call it a dam, but it, it opens up at that moment new possibilities for who this party is going to speak to and for. And I would make the argument that we're still faced with that, 
right? Who are we speaking to and for when it comes to left or, yeah, I'll just call left because Democratic Party is not really interested in movement, in left movement. And I want to give you an opportunity to share more about that address and why it's such a seminal moment in time toward imagining a different future when it comes to progressive politics. So she, Fannie Lou Hamer, went to Atlantic City in August of 1964 to testify in front of what it was called the Credentials Committee of the Democratic National Convention to challenge the right of the all-white Mississippi delegation to be seated to vote for President Johnson as the nominee for the Democratic Party in the presidential election that November. And Hamer and her group of Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party delegates, you know, the challenge was in itself kind of remarkable that they got as far as Atlantic City and the Democratic Party was willing to hear them out. And so they had a few speeches. Some of those middle class black male leaders from Mississippi spoke. They had prepared statements. They were nice statements. But when Fannie Lou Hamer got up there and sat down and started talking, no notes, and telling her story of what had happened and how they lived in fear of their lives. And it was so powerful. It shook Lyndon Johnson because he needed those white delegates to vote for him so that he could be president again, so he could pass really important civil rights legislation. And those white delegates were threatening to leave the convention, vote for George Wallace, who was making noise about how he was going to start a third party. But when he heard her and he cut her off, what he didn't understand is the power in that room, the energy that she generated. People cried who were in that room. There were several hundred people in there. People were crying. Grown men were crying at what she said. Viscerally, they knew she was right. And NBC News played it on the news that night. President Johnson couldn't really get the cameras away from her forever. And they had taped her speech. And that night, the whole nation watched her. And they were moved. Thousands and thousands of telegrams arrived in Atlantic City. Thousands of telegrams arrived in Washington, D.C., supporting Fannie Lou Hamer. She touched Black and white Americans across the country. And it is stunning to me when I did the research to see how some of the elite men around Martin Luther King were so angry with Hamer because she basically took the microphone away from them. They thought they felt she was uneducated and she was low class. Her clothes were an embarrassment to them. I can't believe the things that they actually said to her, but she's the one that touched people, not them. And I think that is such a seminal moment in her life and in this country. And it deeply affected the, the Democratic Party because while she did not get what she wanted, the white delegation was given the seats. They ended up not. They left the convention. But because of what she wanted, the Democratic Party changed. They insisted in 1968 that all delegations be integrated and have more women and the Democratic National Committee itself had more women on it because Fannie Lou Hamer demanded that they do that. So it started its march towards being a much broader party with many different constituencies, which makes it difficult to corral. Honestly, the Republicans have got a thing. It's one white people 
that's it. So, you know, she really made a huge difference. And I think we've underestimated the power of Fannie Lou Hamer to help make that change. And she deserves a lot of credit for it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would definitely agree when you're bringing more voices to the table and they're not in service to, you know, white nationalist state, which is the GOP's position and rooted in anti-blackness as mm-hmm. kind of your core operating principles, it's harder, right? Like yeah. when when you're when you don't have those two touch points, it's a lot harder to bring people together, which kind of leads me into, you know, my next thought or question, which is you know, it seems like we're always challenged by incrementalism with perhaps, I'll grant the grace of saying good intentions, right? So LBJ, very complicated figure, very interesting figure, definitely would recommend listeners out there kind of engaging with his work and his presidency. It is one of the more fascinating presidencies, in in my opinion. But having said that, you know, intentioned to pass something when it came to civil rights. So that was like the good intentions, but then hamstrung by the incrementalism of the moment, right? Having to assuage white racists that were part of then the democratic coalition. And, you know, fast forward, we're in a similar place, right? Intentions maybe to move this project as a nation forward, but hamstrung by, you know, again, a white nationalist party and then the incrementalism of the existing Democratic Party, right? So how do we take the lessons from someone like Fannie Lou Hamer and get another kickstart in a better direction than we are right now? I know, big question, but, you know, we're in the big question business. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I think that voting rights is one of those things it helped people coalesce and around one issue back in the 50s and 60s, it helped people make a decision to commit to even risking their lives to make it happen for people who were denied. So in 1965, Johnson passed that 1965 Voting Rights Act that effectively eliminated all those barriers that places like Mississippi had put up to keep black people from voting. And in 2013, the Supreme Court decision in Shelby v. Holden cast out some of that 1965 Voting Rights Act. So now we have all those states that are now renewing some of those barriers all over again to keep people from voting. It's getting worse and worse. And so I just sense that could be where people are going to come together, that the incrementalism that you talk about, that there are so many groups and factions in the Democratic Party, everybody's going to have to put some of that aside because if people can't vote, none of it is going to matter. None of it is going to matter. So I think Fannie Lou Hamer can teach us something about that. The vote matters. It matters so much. And for people who don't vote, they need to know your vote matters. So that's where I see the similarities and why we don't need to reinvent the wheel all the time. We need to protect what we had and have let slip away. And we need to go back and fight for everybody's voice. Everybody, just like Fannie Lou Hamer wanted her voice, her neighbor's voices, everybody's voice to be heard. Absolutely. I think You know, as as we're starting to get to the final two segments of the show, the other notion that I want to introduce is 
again, when it comes to connecting these dots, when I thought about her issues with bringing a child into the world, the lack of healthcare and the lack of time off. And, you know, even when she had this terrible sterilization, the, the inability to, as someone who was bringing in a wage earner, did not have the ability to even take time off from work. Like these things were unheard of. And we are still living in a nation where, you know, Black women are facing issues at childbirth, not again like Fannie Lou Hamer's time, but again, depending on where you are on the economic scale, not that different. There's still precarity when it comes to childbirth. There's still precarity when it comes to wage and labor and time off. You know, how do we, again, pull some of these conversations together? Because as I was reading the book, I'm confronted with the fact that we're still having these conversations, you know, and if we're 60 years later in, in some cases. What can we pull from her work and legacy to push past these deep structural inequities that affect ultimately all of us as we struggle for care, whether it's COVID or structural racism and, and, and where they intersect with one another. That's a good point. And I think Fannie Lou Hamer would be pretty shocked that things that she was fighting for as part of the Democratic Party platform in the 1960s was universal health care, universal preschool education, equitable education, K through 12 education everywhere. We still don't have that. She wanted equality for women. And she was a very conservative feminist, but there was room for her at the table. And women, I think, who read this book, Black and White Women, might be surprised to see that she was calling for the same things that we see going on the past few weeks in the Build Back Better programs that we want these things, universal preschool education. What the heck? Why is it taking so long? This is a great way to keep get a country back on its feet. And uh, it's, it's so frustrating. So, so many of these things, you know, equal pay, equitable for everything, just equitable treatment for everybody. We're still fighting that. And, you know, the powers that be elites are still fighting back. They don't want to provide that for people. And so Fannie Lou Hamer didn't have all the solutions, but she knew those were problems and she knew how to get people to work together towards solving those problems and attaining those goals. I think the world would be a little bit different if Fannie Lou Hamer had not died in 1977. I think if she had lived another 20, 30 years, things might be a little different. I do. I think we missed her. And let's hope there are Fannie Lou Hamers out there right now that can carry the torch forward. Absolutely. You know, I was having this conversation just in happenstance with a friend and I was telling him, you know, the, the left and progressive movements have lost a lot of leadership through the, the 60s, 70s and 80s and even today, right? They're still struggling with this, you know, concerted effort to dismember the laugh. So something that we should all would all be aware of. And I agree with you. And can, I, mm -hmm. yeah, Go ahead. can I just interject too? Go for is it. Is to, for the activists in our communities that we see that are out there fighting, do not underestimate the tremendous physical burden that they carry being activists. And they, practicing self-care is very difficult, as I've observed 
for activists to do. And Fannie Lou Hamer did not take care of herself. And other activists don't. They burn out. So we need to have support systems for activists so that they don't burn out. We need to watch for that. And that's why the Democratic Party keeps losing leaders. They burn out. They have to walk away. They can't do it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when the elite leadership is also working against you, it's hard to fight the white nationalist party on the other side and then also fight the donor class and within your own party. So double fight in in that respect. In case anyone's not aware of, I'm completely unenthused with the donor class of the Democratic Party. So my own editorial that I'm not projecting onto anyone else. Um, So I want to get us to the final two segments of the show, which are off the dome and the drop off the dome are just some rapid fire designed to be fun questions. So I have four of them for you. So I'm ready when you're ready. Okay, go ahead. All right. If you had to pick a historical nickname for yourself, what would that historical nickname be? <laughs> oh, God, amuse. It would be what? Amuse. I don't know. That's ah, what I think of. Okay. <laughs> I like it. It's, it's better than like Ivan the Terrible or something like that, right? It kind of sets the table. Um, second question. What was the last thing, activity, event, whatever it is, that you know you put 100% of yourself into? Oh, I do that every day when I do writing and researching every single day. Damn, I need to I need to get on your program. I definitely don't put 100% into my writing every day. Because I love it so much, that's why. <laughs> okay. I clearly love it less. Because <laughs> I'm like, I have to write, but there's a shiny object in front of me. I'll just... I'll just do it in an hour. (laughs) Okay. All right. Now we started this off and it's funny because we started talking about more eras than decades, but 19th century historian looking at a 20th century person, what is your most loved decade? Oh boy. I, oh, I'd have to say the 1960s right now. Okay. I usually don't, don't ask a follow-up, but that's kind of a juicy one. So I got to ask like, why, why so? Maybe because it's the one I've studied so intently recently, but there's so much going on. There's so many different groups that are just, you know, there's the anti-war and feminists and civil rights and oh, there's so much going on. And then there's the awful people on the other side of it. It's just, wow, it's so rich. It is such a rich decade of it's complicated and it's not joyful in many ways, sadly, but it's. It had a few triumphs. And there was great music, too. That is very true. There was a lot of great music in the 60s. So my final off the dome is, you know, if you're having like a major milestone or achievement, this could be anything, a a major birthday, a book release, whatever it is that you would consider a major milestone or achievement, what artist or band would you choose to perform to mark this milestone for yourself? Oh, Oh my gosh, uh, Carol King. All right, a little tapestry playing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a girl from the '70s. What can I say? <laughs> All right, fair enough. Can't go wrong with Carol King. Cool, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. See, I told you, fun questions. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The final segment of the show is the drop, and the drop is an opportunity for us to 
share something of interest or note with our listeners. It could be anything at all. It, it doesn't need to be serious, even though I call them these intellectual morsels. So I have a drop ready to go. Hopefully you have a drop too. Do you want me to go first? Yes, go ahead. Absolutely. My drop is a show that I've just recently started watching. It's a Danish show. It's available at least here in the United States on Prime and it's called When the Dust Settles. And it's this, you know, I won't call it a crime noir, but it's a it's an interesting story about how these people's lives intersect both before, during and after this event that hits hits Copenhagen. And it's it's 10 episodes. I'm about I'm seven episodes through it at the time that we're recording this. And it's it's just been such a great watch. Like I, I tend to be a little bit biased and like a lot of international shows. But this is one of my latest finds that I've kind of come upon. And I'm having a good time watching it, even though sometimes it's a heavy show, but it's interesting. And it's called When the Dust Settles. And again, it's available at least here in the United States on Prime. And it's a Danish show. And that's my drop. So you're up. Well, that sounds interesting. I'll have to watch that. So I have to go back to Eyes on the Prize. I've started watching it again just recently. And I think every American has should watch it. There's so much in there. It is so well done. And it's a history that people are trying to deny today. And so we need to bear witness to it. And it's a great way to do it. It's episodic and, you know, it's fantastic. And also on top of that, if you don't have time to watch all of those, start with Freedom Summer. It's like an hour and a half documentary about the 1964 Freedom work of SNCC and all the other civil rights groups during that summer in Mississippi. And Hamer is in it. And it's it's a great way to start immersing yourself in this history. Anytime there's folks like kind of bigging up eyes on the prize, <laughs> never going to find an argument from me about it. And I've already shared my thoughts on it. I echo yours, eyes on a prize. It's just a must watch. And like you said, as these moments are filled with folks trying to, you know, deny the reality of the history of this country, these documentaries and books and citations become even more important so we can have a a real accurate accounting for where we are as a nation, because we're not going to go forward if we don't know where we've been. Right. So Eyes on a Prize is an amazing place to start. So again, Kate, I want to thank you so much for being with me on the deep dive. You know, you gave me an opportunity to talk about someone who is literally, like I said, a hero of mine. The book covers so much more, which is why in my questions, I try not to give spoilers because I want everybody to go out and engage with the book, engage with their life. And, you know, let's move this ship forward. Thank you so much for being on a deep dive with me. Thank you, Philip. It was great. Thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.